I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. The science of learning and development reveals how academic growth is fueled not just by the acquisition of knowledge, but from dynamic relationships between students, teachers, peers, and what they experience. So what experiences can education technology offer to support those relationships and spur engagement and motivation to learn? That's what Newzella seeks to create by tapping into every child's curiosity in accessible and relevant ways. Newzella offers educators and students access to current news stories no matter their reading level on everything from the mission to Mars to the Derek Chauvin trial to the new pets in the White House. And it seems to be working. A randomized, controlled trial study found that students using Newzella twice a week doubled their reading scores compared to students taught reading without the platform. Today, Newzella is in 90% of American schools, serving 37 million students and 2.5 million teachers. EdTech funders have certainly taken notice. Newzella recently announced a $100 million Series D investment. So how does it work? For the answer, we turned to Dan Kogan-Drew, Newzella's co-founder and chief academic officer. Dan has worked in education for 25 years as a public, independent, and charter school teacher with a focus on integrating digital learning technologies to engage students and accelerate learning. One note before we begin, and ask from me to you. If you like our 180 conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dan Kogan-Drew. Dan, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Chris, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You have spent your career focused on the intersection of digital learning and new technologies and innovative education, opportunity, access, and and more. So could we start with what is surely the pertinent question? How do you connect world-class ultimate Frisbee playing with (laughs) delivering next-generation education to the world? (laughs) So ultimate Frisbee has been kind of the through line of my life. Uh, I started playing in college and um, uh, actually competed against uh, my now business partner, Matt Gross, when he was at Columbia. I was at Wesleyan and uh, we were, he might say, bitter rivals. I would say it was, wasn't a rivalry. I, I played competitively and coaching and getting into some curriculum development and coaching curricula for Frisbee. It happens that I met my wife playing Frisbee. We now live in Maplewood, New Jersey, which is the birthplace of Frisbee, to which we moved because it was the birthplace of Frisbee. You didn't name your kid Frisbee, anything like that, right? You're not that dedicated to the sport. Yeah, that's right. But I will say, you know, it's just a segue into some of the topics we're going to talk about. I have been reflecting on sports and the Mm. the nature of sports and youth athletics. Uh, I have uh, uh, both of my kids not surprisingly, enjoy Ultimate Frisbee. But both of them, and one is currently engaged in youth soccer. And I've been watching the dynamics of youth soccer, both from the sideline as a parent, where I've you know mostly muzzling myself, and also with the role of the referee and what the referee is signed, uh, charged with and how that compares to what happens on a, an Ultimate Frisbee field, where there is still a coach on the sideline, but the players are making their own calls and what that teaches them about their, uh, their inter- interconnectedness and their interrelation as opponents 
when they shake hands at the end of the game, they really are thanking each other for the game. It's not pro forma. And there isn't a case of if the ref didn't see it, it didn't happen. And I'm already seeing that my 11-year-old, you know, I have to be careful that he's not being taught the wrong message about what a foul is and what it means to be in competition and why we play. And uh, so Ultimate Frisbee has a through line both, you know, as an avocation, but also I think there are some considerations for like what it what hopefully in its best form could say about um, how we all get along. The part of youth sports that I frequently relate to and talk about, and I think that maybe this will help segue as well into education in your approach, and we see it so often in youth soccer, is let the ball come to you. Be prepared, be ready, but let the ball, let the game come to you, which might segue as well a little bit into uh, Newzella and the way that, that you help um, students elevate their game. Dan, could you take us back to the start and just tell us you know, the origin story of Newzella? Um, how did it begin? What is it? What does it do? So Newzella was basically an answer to a problem um, that my my colleague, now our CEO, founder and CEO, Matt Gross, and I both sort of perceived. He perceived it uh, personally from his own son's experience in school and being told uh, by an administrator in the building that as a, a student in New York State, some kids were just going to be a two on the New York State test, two out of four, and there's really nothing she could do. So Matt's an entrepreneur, and he wasn't going to he wasn't going to stand for that. And I was in classrooms working on behalf of a, a charter school network trying to figure out what can technology do. And I kept running into the same problem uh, where there just weren't good, good resources um, in the space of the so-called uh, reading to learn, where you're reading to gather information, build background knowledge, uh, and really create that foundation on which you're going to build the rest of your, your learning. Uh, and so we settled on news. We needed to solve the problem of high interest, authentic sources. News was a, um, a very uh, generative form of that. And we needed to solve an access problem. Two-thirds of kids still don't read on uh, on a grade level and on a basis that's preparing them for college and, and career readiness in this country. That's a Canada-sized population of U.S. kids. Mm. Uh, and so what we did was take original source content uh, published at the original by the original authors, you know, let's say the Associated Press, and we would create multiple versions down from the 12th grade version down to as low as a second or third grade by actually rewriting the articles, um, aligning them to standards and making it what we would say instructionalized, classroom ready. So any teacher could take this article and uh, use it to generate engagement with their students, with every student. How does Newzella facilitate the student-teacher relationship or even potentially the student-student relationship? you must feel on some level that you're in the relationship business. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. I mean, I think I think that's right. You know, I think it's based on a premise that we believe, and I think learning science bears this out, that much of learning that takes place is social. And um, one of the things that can keep a student from being able to engage socially with their peers from whom they learn a great deal or can learn a great deal and their teacher is um, access to the text. And that access sometimes is characterized as the digital divide where they don't have a device, they don't have internet. It can also be access in terms of the um, uh, accessibility of the text itself. That is, if I'm a student who requires some kind of accommodation to navigate by keyboard, for example, you can get me the device, you can get me the internet, I still can't get to the content because this website is not built for my, my purposes and my needs. Um, and then there's the content itself. Is this compelling? Does it want me to, does it ask of me to, you know, the, the, to bring my whole self? Does it, will I 
put forward the effort required to really understand this? Is this valuable to me? And, uh, and through that, I, I can connect to my teacher. I can understand the purpose for what we're doing today. And I can participate meaningfully in dialogue with my peers. If I'm not reading at grade level, I'm a sixth grader and I read at a fourth grade level, don't send me out of the room and don't give me the fourth grade version, you know, the fourth grade book. Uh, I don't want to go to the shelf and get the purple book. Don't do that to me. Um, let me read the same thing as everyone else. And you know what? I'm a sixth grade reader, but today I'm going to read at a fourth grade level. And then I'm going to read it again at a sixth grade level because this is about the origin of the cosmos. Uh, and that's what I need today. Uh, and that's okay. So let's, let's talk about where your company is. How would you characterize where you are right now in terms of reach and scale? We've grown considerably. Um, certainly when the pandemic hit and schools started to close back in March of 2020, our leadership team got together very quickly and said, look, what's the right response to this moment? And very quickly decided that the, the best thing we could do was to, be, to make our product available for free to any district that requested it. And we saw an enormous uptake to that offer. So we went from, you know, we're now, we now have a user base of something on the order of 35 million students, uh, about 2.7 million teachers. We've added maybe about 10 million students to the user base. We're in 90% of, of classrooms. I think we've just sort of increased our reach and the relevance of what we do. Um, so it was a sort of an important moment for us to kind of to step up as a, as a provider uh, and to kind of ask ourselves honestly, like, what's the most useful thing we can do right now? Why is it so popular? Why does it connect? Well, what teachers tell us is that it fills a gap for them when it comes to the instructional content uh, that, that really propels their instruction. Sometimes we call it colloquially uh, Sunday night Googling. This mm. is that experience that you have is that you're going into the week and you're looking for the thing that you want your students to actually read. You have strong intent, you have good alignment to standards, and you have a strong sort of notion of, of outcomes. But then it comes time to what is what are my students actually reading? What are they going to watch? What are they going to listen to? Um, and right now, you know, without Newzella, let's say you're you're sort of in a place where you may find yourself on Teachers Pay Teachers, you may find yourself on Pinterest. Um, there's a RAND study pointing to the uh, proliferation of uh, of resources that were sort of, you know, the internet where a kid comes home and says, uh, we're doing research and say, oh, that's interesting. What are you, what are you using? Oh, Google. And you sort of think to yourself as a parent, like, uh oh, like there's yeah. a million ways that this could go wrong. And then it comes time for the materials and somewhere between the New York Times uh, at a 12th grade reading level or above and Pinterest, uh, you need to find a solution that can reach all of your kids. Uh, that's authentic and accessible. And I would think, and this is how I have always interpreted what you do, it helps connect what we're learn what kids are, what students are learning in school with the real world. We ask the question ourselves, you know, growing up in school, why do I need to know this? When am I ever going to use this in life? And you make that connection, I think, between what we're learning, what the kids are learning in school, what students are learning in school, and what's going on in the rest of the world. Is that a fair characterization of the mission? Yeah, I mean, that goes back to sort of the, the earliest days of New Zealand where we started with this sort of the, the middle school as an entry point, middle school, English language arts, news as a source of high quality, uh, authentic, um, relevant uh, nonfiction, um, and an inexhaustible 
sort of refreshed on a daily basis source of this, which really met um, a need that teachers had to find that kind of material. And it sort of gets to some of the questions um, around motivation and, and engagement um, and some of the learning science and what we know about what fuels this and also what impedes it. And so I think what we've sort of struck on is um, an opportunity to to really establish and maintain that relevance um, as something that students are entitled to. They're entitled to know why this matters. And um, the content, is, to some degree, should speak for itself. It shouldn't, shouldn't be that hard to unto it why we're reading this. Thinking of it from that perspective, could Newzella have existed 20 years ago? And I don't mean that as a technology question. Once upon a time, we learned because that's what you have to learn because that's what the teacher said, because that's what the curriculum offers, because that's the, that's the routine, routinized approach to learning information. Would, would Nuzella have existed 20, 30 years ago? What has changed in education? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I'll, I'll just say to, to, to pick on the words you chose a little bit, the, the idea of we learned, I would say that like, I actually don't think we did. I think that there was a lot of gaps um, that were prevalent, you know, t have been prevalent all along um, in the sort of factory model. Um, we have not reached all kids. And um, and I think to go to your question, like, you know, something that No Child Left Behind did help to elevate is the disparities in, in society. And it laid it pretty bare when you compare apples to apples. And so first you sort of raise the level of awareness that this is not uh, this is an inequitable education system. Um, and then you start to look at why and you start to question some of the decisions, some of the things we've taken for granted. Um, and how many of the decisions that go into the design of learning are actually for the benefit of the institution? And I think every parent understands this because they're they're advocating really for, you know, a number that's usually no larger than one. Maybe they have three kids or four kids, so they, they go after four kids. And they're trying to wrestle with an institution that's been built to move hundreds, if not thousands of kids, steadily through a kind of factory cadence. And so I think you have a convergence of better visibility into the data and understanding really the contours of what we're facing in terms of the inequities. Not, not every child is receiving what they need. Um, and then you have this storm of the 24-7 news cycle, uh, social media, um, immediate, always-on access, ubiquitous devices, um, a much improved user experience, and, a, and a, a level of expectation on behalf of students that if you're going to put a device, you're going to put a screen in front of me, I expect an experience that's equivalent to the, the, the highest caliber, most, and sometimes not to their benefit, but most engaging addictive kinds of behaviors that I'm being taught are this sort of premium TikTok, Instagram. Um, it's really got to be compelling. And if it's clunky, you know, I know almost out of the gate, oh, this is trying to teach me something, isn't it? Because it's, it's something is not, doesn't feel right here. How do you connect that to the, what the learning science says about how to engage students? As humans, we're, we're wired to learn. We, we don't have to motivate ourselves to survive. We have a natural curiosity to learn about the world. Evolution bears this out. that We, we learn or uh, we're not around for long. Mm. And so, so the question then, when you see a student who's not engaged in a learning context, in a classroom context, the question isn't really how do you give them engagement 
you sort of, you have to ask yourself, why is this student, what's blocking the students? What's impeding the students' natural ability to be engaged, to satisfy their curiosity? And I think what we see is, you know, when you look at some of the principles of learning science, you see that students, when they don't find certain conditions being met in a learning context, will look elsewhere. And games, we, you know, social media and video games are a great example. Gaming is optimized in a sense almost by learning science, probably most directly by learning science, to be to do all the things that satisfy a student's desire to engage. So, for example, um, a game upon entering the game, it's immediately clear you belong. Welcome, Chris. Uh, so glad to have you. This game is for you. This is the best game ever, and it's for you. So welcome and continually welcoming you and continually reinforcing. It doesn't happen in every learning situation in a classroom. And from our perspective, we're not the teacher, of course. And so we think about what are instructional materials do and not do. And one of the things that they can often send a signal is by whose voices they elevate and whose story gets told. They send a message of exclusion and a little bit of my own sensitivity to that. I was pulled out as a young reader and I was the subject of uh, reading intervention. Uh, but there was always a moment in the day when someone came to the door and knocked and we tried to pretend like it wasn't a big deal. But there was no hiding the fact that I was getting out of my, my seat, leaving the classroom. And then there was a moment of reentry, which was almost worse because it's like entering the room and everyone's laughing. And it's yes. like, well, what's the, what did I miss? Yeah. Um, but who gets whose voices are heard, whose story gets told? Um, do the the characters in various roles look like you? And what are those roles? Are they positive, negative? Are they positively affirming? This this subject area, this grade level is for you. Um, so that's just one belongingness, just to pick that one apart. One that we think about a lot. How do you measure engagement? How do you measure success there? I'm thinking of a Gallup survey that ran for seven years, um, ending in 2016, that basically found that the more time students spend in school, the less engaged they are. So 74% of kids in, in grade five were engaged, but 34% were engaged in grade 12. Mm. Um, it just gets worse. Uh, and so what are you going to do in that, um, in that circumstance? So I think one of the, one of the lights we want to shine this year is, is to measure engagement um, and not just at the showing up, is is Dan's butt in the seat um, and is his computer on and is he spending minutes in this program? Uh, that's you know necessary, but not sufficient. What we really want to see is, is this increasing Dan's motivation, his authentic desire to engage with this material? Is it hard to measure? Absolutely. Uh, but we don't think it's impossible. And we think there's a huge amount of leverage because with that comes actionable uh, measures. We can understand more about the real relationship between the kind of content and the kind of experience with the content that will drive motivation uh, for all students and for different groups of students in different ways based on the context. So we've committed to making this a corporate level KPI, which is basically the highest value we can put on something this year. And we're turning to experts in the field like Turnaround, uh, uh, to help uh, inform our understanding and what is the, the foundation of the learning science around motivation, engagement, and academic progress. Describe for me how Newzella works for a student, how they choose what to read. And, and maybe parallel to that, I found myself wondering as well about the obstacles that you face. 
Is that, you know, are your challenges with teachers? Are they with administrators? Are they with parents who want to know, you know, why, why are my, you know, why is my kid learning about this? Where's that information coming from? What are the sources? Wait a minute. Are they teaching my kid fake news? Yeah. I mean, so I think part of the benefit to the student um, is that this is a better way to get the work done, uh, to be, you know, sort of blunt about it. There's a certain amount of work that I'm going to be asked to do. And all things being equal, I'd rather use Newzella because I have access to an article at multiple levels. So I can feel confident that when I open a Newzella article, I have a mentality of I can do this. Um, I understand that there's also choice. One of the things we work very hard to do is to enable students with some degree of autonomy, even when they're assigned something, unless they're assigned, read this particular article. And even at that case, that they could change the level if they wanted to read it at a lower level before a higher one. Um, but they could also choose in in the way that they learn about their U.S. history, the the sort of foregrounding of different characters and different narratives, so that there isn't one U.S. history story. So a lot um, of optionality and um, is is empowerment the wrong word? Is that? I think empowerment. I mean, we'd say like autonomy, agency, mm -hmm, sense mm -hmm, of control. Mm -hmm, like from mm -hmm. the learning sciences, like I need to believe that there's something I can do that will impact, have a direct. The locus of control resides within me to a large extent and isn't just a foregone conclusion. You know, um, I I'm terrible in this class. Nothing I do, you know, learned helplessness. Um, but I'm an agent of my own learning, and I can pursue my curiosity where it leads. There are times when I can't. There are times when my teacher assigns me something. So okay, fine. I have to do this thing. But actually, it's not going to be as bad as it would otherwise be, somewhat negatively put. But, you know, cynical student, like, fine, do my homework. Um, but also, maybe I might actually find something interesting um, in this along the way. Where does any pushback come from? So pushback can come from, uh, you mentioned this, like the sources. Like, so, so prove to me that Newzella isn't just fake news. We started out, you know, with this sort of news and Newzella. Um, and we've expanded far beyond news into primary sources and many other forms of writing uh, and media. Um, but there is an aspect to which the editorial process is similar to, you know, if you're getting it from both sides, you're probably in an okay place. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not going to get to a place where everyone's just like, oh, that's, you know, fine and dandy. But if the conservative uh, constituents in, in various communities are a little bit upset about something, and the liberal constituency is a little bit upset about something, you're probably walking a line where, yeah, there's something upsetting for everyone in the world, uh, and students see that, and we don't hide that from them. And we want to be forthright about where the controversy is. What we, there, we publish pro-con articles specifically with that to call out, this is a conservative viewpoint, this is a liberal viewpoint. Um, so we don't, I think, we don't hide from that. And increasingly, we've seen districts... Um, engage in really deep conversations with their communities about, well, what do you really want kids to be reading about? And, you know, the purpose of school is to prepare them for this world, not to, you know, hide the world from them. Can we talk about another challenging area that I know you have thought about every day, perhaps? Technology, on the one hand, as a force for good, and technology at the same time as a divider, as an extender of gaps in opportunity. As COVID began to hit, it really raised to the fore that digital divide, um, you know, which frequently occurs along lines of wealth and race. How do you think about that balance? So I think, you know, there's some instructive 
sort of data points that you can look at in terms of like what we see at large. Like one thing that we notice is that the folks who work in the tech industry tend to have a different view towards technology than folks who work outside of it when it comes to their own children. Hmm. So you could say whatever you want. And then there's what you'll practice with your kids. And, and you see the sort of Silicon Valley school model is not the, uh, you know, uh, screen time driven. It's much more about um, interpersonal connection, relationships, um, self-directed learning. And again, I think satisfying your curiosity as a learner and really tapping into what motivates you personally. So in that sense, it's individualized. I think sometimes technology gets misused um, uh, when you sort of think to yourself, um, well, what's the best way to personalize learning for every student? If we could just create the algorithm that would, would program someone's learning, we could sit every kid down in front of something that was just right for them and they would pursue their own path. And sometimes this is construed as like a way to accelerate kids who are already above grade level in their board. Let them keep going. Let the eighth grader work into the 11th grade material. Um, that's one perspective. I think it isn't always the healthiest. I think technology, you know, metaphorically, is, is when it's misused, it's like the screen. You can't see the kid because the screen's in the way. You've got this giant monitor, and you know a kid's on the other side of it as a teacher, but you literally can't see them. Mm. Like That's the opposite of what the technology should do. Right? It should be a, a force for enable, enabling connections, building relationships, and being creative. I think a lot of what the divide comes down to is who's consuming and who's creating. And the more you get the creators sort of um, controlling the messages and the media, and you have a, a relatively uh, la a relative lack of diversity uh, racially and ethnically amongst the creators. You you see a kind of um, you know a, a, a control mechanism for what gets consumed by whom and for what purpose. And again, you see like the producers are not that's not the way they educate their kids. So we got to sort of stop and ask ourselves why would that be? How do you think about? adaptive technology, um, how do you think about the, the positive ways in which technology um, can help with learning? So one of the ways that, you know, I, I tend to look at technology is to, to understand a little bit about um, the mindset of the technology. We sometimes put the technology in a category as co-teacher and you know what, how well, how conversant is the technology with the teacher? Does the can the teacher tell the technology to do something? Does the technology understand what the teacher is trying to do here? When the technology speaks, quote unquote, back to the teacher, can the teacher understand what it's saying? Can it, can it offer insights into what students are doing? So there's a relationship there um, that I think is sort of uh, Newzella or technology stand-in, whatever you want to call it, teacher and student. And, and they, they bear different, they play different roles. They're different sort of jobs to be done, uh, so to speak. And um, you have to be mindful of who, what does the software think its job is? And, you know, software doesn't create itself. So someone created it. People, people have flaws and points of view and biases. And often there's implicit models that are, you know, you take a hard look at what this software thinks its job is. And it's actually impinging on the student's job or it's impinging on the teacher's job. And ultimately what we would, what we're striving for is students to be self-directed and really turn that, that agency over to them. It's a process. It's a gradual process. It's not something that we want to um, relinquish to them immediately. Loss of learning, such a concern over the last year. Our kids just aren't learning enough. Uh, they missed too much school. Um, we've lost a whole year. Um, is that what you see is the is the right question to be asking one about loss of learning 
No, I think it's I think it's it's the wrong direction. And, you know, how we frame the problem is how we'll compose possible solutions. And I think when we look at it from this sort of deficit orientation, we're putting everyone in a hole. We're sort of saying that, you know, just imagine what that says to teachers and what that says to students. Um, tens of millions of people in this country are getting the message that uh, they're in a, a losing battle. They're in a, they're losing Every day they're losing. They're losing more. And how, speaking of motivation, how demotivating would that be to to try to fight, um, you know, those circumstances and that language um, every day as you sit down to, again, pursue, you know, uh, satisfaction of your curiosity. So I think we need to really, really question that. I understand it has a role in turning up the heat. I think the heat's up. We all get it. We can stop using those terms now. We start talking about, what actually has been gained. I think a lot of students have learned quite a bit that um, we may not think, we may not classify as academic learning. Um, but maybe they did. And therefore, some students, certainly, the institution itself is actually a barrier. They're better off at home um, due to the amount of, of impediments they face institutionally from, you know, in, the, in the, the learning environment. And I think part of this, I just to, to step back here, is that is with the data sources are at the key. I think that's at the heart of the problem. Is that what we're getting is testing data? That is like when when new data comes out, new quote unquote data comes out, it's testing data. So everyone's like, oh look, that's the spotlight. That's where we should be looking, and that's where our eyes are directed. And so we end up talking about test scores. Uh, we need new and better data sources that help us understand other aspects of students and teachers' lived experiences right now that are helping us round out our understanding because this is sort of, you know, people can remember typically like one thing that they associate with one area, school, tests. And I think that's narrows the focus. So what you're going to get, if you take that logic, you sort of say the problem is academic learning. Well, what do we have that, you know, that will help with that? It's like, well, we've got a bunch of software that can personalize learning for every student. So let's get more kids on more software throughout the summer and we're going to catch up. And I think that's just going to decimate communities. I think it's just going to rip through communities, um, tearing apart the motivation, interfering with the relationships that kids need most right now. Um, and uh, I think that would be the worst outcome. We do this pre-mortem exercise every once in a while to say to ourselves, like, it's August and everything went horribly wrong. Uh, what, what do we think happened? I mean, that's probably my number one concern keeps me awake at night is that technology is going to be seen as one thing. It's going to be applied in one way and and everyone's going to suffer. What an important question. What defines academic learning and what are we testing? I mean, we can use an old classification and we can test the wrong things and come up with the you know wrong data or, or, or challenged data around an outdated definition of something. Yeah. I mean, so I'll give you an example from a book I was reading recently called um, Make It Stick, which is basically a sort of compendium of, of, of research on learning and, and what actually leads to outcomes and what are some of the mistaken notions out there. So there's a notion called mass practice. It's not just a notion, it's a practice. We basically drill on something and in the short term, you see improvement on it. So you, you're, we're going to learn uh, addition skills and uh, we're going to be drilling on addition skills. And over the course of our 40 minutes or even a couple of days, my kids are going to get better at addition skills. Then along comes an addition problem in the real world that isn't presented as, you know, the next item on a problem set. And somehow 
crazy as it seems, students have trouble. I'm oversimplifying addition. Perhaps they could do this, but they have trouble translating this massed practice of addition skill after addition skill to the real world context, because the real way that learning happens is through an interleaving of the, the uh, tasks that are similar, but in a different context. Mm. And it's deceptive because educators in the room, and I, you know, you can imagine a coach, a soccer coach, just drilling a certain kind of, you know, passing with the right foot. We're getting really good at passing with the right foot. Cut to the game. The ball lands on my right foot. I'm just as likely to goof that pass, even though I've just done 40 isolated practices of passing with my right foot because I haven't really synthesized and understood that skill in a larger context. Um, and I think that's a pitfall we could easily fall into. And software is great at algorithmic repetition with incremental advances and um, and all the like. And I think that's um, will lead us you know, to, to arrive at some mistaken conclusions about the progress we've made. It's also another excellent argument why we all should be playing Frisbee and not just <laughs> soccer. I, I, I think that was really the point that you wanted me to take away from, from that example. If there's one thing. If there's, if, if, there's, thing. <laughs> if there's just one thing. Dan, as we start to close out, what's the most interesting or maybe surprising thing you're learning about students as they use Newzella, maybe about their interests or motivations? I think one of the things that's most interesting is that students are, re are, are more ready for this world. They live in this world more deeply than we sometimes give them credit for at younger and younger ages, and that they're exposed to what we might have thought in my generation, let's say, were adult topics much, much younger, and they are, they are aware on the periphery of these things. And when they're not fully, when they're not able to face them directly, sort of, uh, you know, full, fully face them and learn about them, they really become sort of sources of agitation and stress and their distractions um, that are are not easily satisfied and you can't you can't address it. There's something bothering you and you're not sure what it is because you heard a snippet around something that sounds very disturbing, but you're only in third grade and nobody's explaining to you what's going on. And often it's teachers who are in that position. Um, and I think we really need to honor kids and understand like the world we live in and their exposure to it is much deeper and much more significant than then I think people in my generation may may initially have perceived, I'll say I perceive personally, that's a learning that I've had. TechCrunch says you're a unicorn. Are you a unicorn? Uh, technically, I suppose we're a unicorn, sure. Um, but I mean, I think the, I think there's many other opportunities for companies to sort of grow uh, and, and help teachers out that don't have to become these sort of... Um, diamond in the rough unicorn types. Um, there are a lot of openings uh, and a lot of problems to be solved. Um, and I think if you're always putting teachers and kids first and you're really thinking about the human aspect and the relationships that you're trying to foster and removing obstacles to these, then you can see boundless opportunities. Um, so I don't think we'll, we're not alone and we, we'll, we certainly won't be going forward. Dan, thank you. Thank you for the conversation. Thanks for what you uh, and, and your colleagues do for uh, students, teachers, educators, parents, our schools. Thanks very much, Chris. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Dan Cogan-Drew. My thanks to Dan for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, 
go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.